All right, well, let's continue talking about the marks of a true church. Last week, we looked at what true fellowship is, and we looked at um, believer's baptism. And Virginia got baptized last week. How cool was that? So um, these are the seven marks, as I'm talking about them for this class, of a true church as given to us in Scripture. Not a perfect list. You could do more, you could do less, but this is where we're focusing. Um, And we made it through baptism last week as we looked at the ordinances of the local church. And uh, now we'll start by looking at communion or the Lord's table. So let's go together to 1 Corinthians 11 and look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting down in verse 23. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, he established communion when he was with his disciples in the upper room before uh, he went to die on the cross He had the last Passover meal with them, and he gave us that amazing phrase, this do in remembrance of me. All right, that's why we take communion. That's why it's called the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, because the Lord Jesus was the one who instituted it. And we see even internally, as we look at internal evidence in the Bible, we see that this was a practice that kept on going regularly. So would someone please read for us verses 23 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. 23 to 26. Hayden, thank you. All right. So last week when we were looking at baptism, we read a passage or two and asked the question, uh, why would a person be baptized? And in Scripture we see that when a person believes in Jesus, is committing to following Jesus, baptism is a sign of that belief, of that trust, of that commitment. Why should someone partake of the Lord's table? If you look at this passage we just read, if you run your eyes back over those verses, why should a person partake of communion? Okay. Yeah, how amazing it is that last phrase in verse 26. When we do it, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's a really interesting aspect of communion, and it's one of those things that is just for this time. When Jesus comes back, communion will not be taken in the same way. But in this current time, as we are having communion together, we are proclaiming his death. And who are we proclaiming it to, do you think? Okay, so primarily it's each other. These gatherings of the local church, it was believers who got together. Remember when we talked about fellowship last week? What the Bible always talks about with fellowship is believers with each other. Now, there is an element, and we see it even in 1 Corinthians, where, of course, you'll have people who come in who aren't believers. But primarily, the idea is that it's believers doing it together to proclaim to one another Jesus' death until he comes. Joe? Yeah, that's right. Well, and so you do it because Jesus told you to do it when you are a believer in Jesus, right? If you're not a believer in Jesus, then you have no reason to do what he says. Communion is also a matter of obedience, just as Joe was pointing out, because the Lord commanded it. As often as we do it, we declare his death and our unity until he comes. How often should we partake of communion, you think? Daily. But we don't gather daily. Yeah, but... The bread and the juice, you know. Yeah. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. What do you think? Did you know that this is a matter of some debate in Christian circles? <laughs> well, we do monthly um, for now, but there are many churches that do weekly. There are some churches that do quarterly. And there are some churches that don't do it at all. And that is tragic. Yeah. Yeah, that's disobedient, isn't it? Well, that's something to just think about, okay? Um, how often do you think the Corinthians were doing it? It, it, was, it was weekly, uh, it seems. Now, they were gathering more than just once a week, but we see that um, they got together particularly on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16 says that. And communion seemed to be just a regular part of their gathering. Week in, week out, they would have communion. And so if we're looking for the example set in Scripture, it seems as though more frequently than monthly would be the case. Okay. Something to think about, Mandy. Well, there is no command for how often, all right? So basically, you're left with um, kind of a conscience issue for at a church leadership level. And there are some people who will say, we should not do it any more frequently than monthly, because if you do, then it becomes like ritualistic, it becomes old hat. But couldn't you say the same thing about singing and the preaching of the word and fellowship itself, right? You could say that about anything that we do every week, okay? And so that's not really a good excuse. Um, there's logistics involved, of course, especially the bigger a church gets, that's a lot to keep track of week in and week out. Someone's got to pour all those cups. Someone's got to bake that bread or get the bread or whatever and get it all ready. And so there's that element too. Um, there are some other reasons, but basically seeing it as a, a principle of or, or a matter of liberty, you can kind of be more pragmatic about it, but you got to be careful because if you start doing once a year, that seems to go against the spirit of what it's all about in Scripture. So, churches have to be careful. Yeah, Stan? I would say no. Yes, I would say yes. In fact, I would say um, there have been times where people wanted communion served at a wedding, or people wanted communion served at a funeral, or at a Christian conference to have communion together. I would say all of those are inappropriate times to have communion. It's in the local church at the gathering of the local church. It's not a broad gathering of Christians from anywhere who, you know, I look across the room and I don't know 90% of the people. That's not it. It's when the local church comes together. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. And it seems to be uh, the reason why it exists is for us to, together, in our local fellowship, encourage one another until the Lord comes. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions here on communion before I move on? I'm going to try to make it all the way through page 50 today. We'll see. Roman Catholicism teaches transubstantiation when it comes to communion. That states that the bread is literally the body of Jesus, and the wine or the juice literally becomes the blood of Jesus. When you ingest these things, there's a transformation that happens. The transubstantiation, the substance changes. Okay? There's a transforming of the substance. That's what Roman Catholics teach. Lutherans teach consubstantiation, which states that the body of Jesus is in, with, and under the elements. But the elements don't change into those things, but he is especially present in, with, and under. Kind of interesting. We practice and teach the memorial view, which uh, takes a strict adherence to when Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me, we're doing it as a memorial, remembering him. Not that there's any kind of special, mystical presence of Christ in communion, especially. 
but that we're doing it memorially. Okay. Just have one slide on that that I'd throw it out there in case anybody was curious about those things. So, moving right along. Ministry of the Word. Next element, as we go through our list of seven marks of a true church, if we believe that God grows His people through the power of His Word, it should be of utmost importance that Spirit-inspired revelation is central to the gathering of Spirit-indwelt believers. Okay? Where do we get all the authority in our beliefs? It's the Word of God, isn't it? You should not answer with the pastor. You should not answer with, well... Uh, Historically, you know, you have some people who got together who agreed on some things, and so they have the authority. That's not it. Uh, no creature has the authority. Only the Creator has the authority. And where has He spoken? In His Word. So we look to the Word of God for our authority in teaching. And this is why churches like ours have a, you could say, more prominent pulpit. On Sunday mornings, when you go in there, you see on the stage, what is front and center? The pulpit. On the stage, front and center, the pulpit. Because the Word is central to our gathering. The Word of God is absolutely central to all that we do. It's the foundation of all that we do. It's the reason why we do all that we do. And if we get away from that, we're getting away from our purpose. So let's look at a couple of passages. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, through 5, and Titus 1, 7-9. through 9. Who will grab and read for us the 2 Timothy 4 passage, verses 1 through 5? 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. Anna, Stan, you want to get Titus, chapter 1, 7 to 9? Well, just turn forward a page or two and you'll find Titus there. This is right after 2 Timothy. Um, so let's consider how the Word of God is central to the happenings of the local church based on what we're reading in these passages. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Anna. All right. So right there in verse 2, preach the word. That's the commission given to local church pastors. Preach the word. And there's a time coming when people will turn away from sound doctrine, they will turn to myths. And what's the antidote to this? What's the solution? The word of God. It's still the word of God. Just this past uh, week, I was listening to an episode of Joe Rogan with Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback, and uh, it's so silly. So um, Joe Rogan's really into aliens right now, so he talks a lot about aliens in every episode, and he's trying to blend aliens with the Bible. And so um, he's recognizing to a degree that the Bible has some sort of supernatural origin, and he had his uh, co-host guy pull up and read from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel talks about the, the wheels, the spinning wheels, and all these different things that Ezekiel saw in his vision. And Joe Rogan's like, it's aliens. He saw aliens. And he said, you know, I think humanity just goes through these cycles where we get to the point where we mess everything up so bad that these aliens have to come and they have to give us some direction. Like Moses getting the Ten Commandments. That was probably from someone in outer space. <laughs> okay, so... What, what, is it, what does it say here? Um, where did it say myths? Well, myths, wasn't that the word that was used here? They will, uh, verse 4, turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Yeah. Well, what's the antidote? The word of God. Okay. Uh, Titus 1, 7 to 9, Stan. Okay, this is talking about overseers, pastors, elders in the church. Verse 9, after all these moral qualifications, here's a skill. 
It's also moral, but there's a skill to it also. Verse 9, he must hold fast to the faithful or trustworthy word in accordance with the teaching, to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute bad doctrine. So in the local church, the word of God has to be central. The handling of the word of God has to be central. Teaching has to be solid based on the word of God. Okay? Any questions on that before we move on to prayer, on the ministry of the word? Any thoughts? Rebukes. All right. Prayer. Let's talk about prayer. Local churches should be full of prayer. Where fellowship is, prayer should be also. Look at what the gathering of believers was up to in the book of Acts. Let's all go to the book of Acts together. Turn back to Acts chapter 1, and let's look at their example of prioritizing prayer in the fellowship. Acts chapter 1. And we'll start with verses 12 to 14. This is after Jesus ascended into heaven, when the angels said to the disciples, he's coming back just in the same way as he left. What do they do? What's their first instinct? Look at this, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's quite an interesting group. Don't you wish you could have been in that prayer meeting? Like, we don't have any time to pray because I have 700 questions, right? Um, but they were, they were praying. It says at the beginning of verse 14, that's what they devoted themselves to, and they were doing so with one mind. That was their priority. And we would do well to ask ourselves why prayer is a priority for the local church. Why is, why is prayer a priority for our fellowship? Knowing what we know about God and salvation and where the world is headed, why is prayer a priority for us? Hey, very good. So what relationship do you have that is good because there's no talking at all? Now, you might think of some people that it's like, well, I've shunned them and they've shunned me and we've been better off for it, right? Well, that's because of sin. I'm talking about a relationship um, with someone you love and someone who loves you, a relationship that has truth all over it and goodness all over it. How are you going to keep that up by not talking? You can't. Okay? Prayer is a key part of that. What other reasons are there for why we should pray? Okay. Yeah, brings us together, especially when we think of yeah, our corporate setting of praying. We grow together in one heart and one mind as we pray for things together, as we hear about requests that need to be prayed for, and we intercede for one another in prayer. Does that help or hurt our fellowship? Well, it can only help, right? It's, it's very helpful to do that. When, oh, go ahead, Connie. That's right. We need to thank God for all that we have because He is sovereign. He's in control. He's the creator of all things. And um, if He is sovereign and in control of all things, as we thank Him for that, who else would we go to with our problems in this life? We can go to people who are creatures like us, who don't have that control, 
Or we could go boldly before the throne of grace and give all of our problems to Jesus and go right to him. And God takes care of it. Isn't that nice? Not saying he makes your life easy. Not saying he takes away all your problems. Not saying he takes away all your pain. But he takes care of you. And he'll see you through it. Moni. A couple more passages in Acts. Uh, 12 and 13. Chapters 12 and 13. Acts chapter 12. Verses 11 and 12. All right, so in Acts chapter 12, it's a really interesting scenario where you've got Peter in prison and then Peter escaping prison, not as some like fugitive or uh, not a Shawshank Redemption scenario where he dug a tunnel or something like that, but you have Peter escaping prison because the Lord sent forth his angel to deliver Peter. That's what it says in verse 11. It says, When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So, Peter's whole story, very interesting. You could spend time looking at that. But the point is here, he leaves and he goes to find the people of God. I think that's an important thing to note. Peter goes to be with God's people, and he finds them, and what are they doing? Praying. That's what they're up to. And we see something similar the next chapter over, Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, in response to God's calling on their lives to send out these, to have these missionaries go out, they fasted, they prayed, and they commissioned these people to go off with the gospel. Prayer is central to the life of the church, whether it's just a regular Sunday morning gathering or whether it's a monumental event like sending off some missionaries. Prayer is at the core of what we do. Okay, Thoughts or questions on prayer there? Lots of other places we could go in the Bible, of course, to talk about prayer, but here we see in the local church it was a very core element of what they did. Okay? All right, let's talk about service. Service, three more to look at. Serving, equipping, and self-governing. Service. God's people have been given the title of servants, or more literally, slaves. Thus, they should serve. Who would have thought? God calls us servants and like expects us to serve because he calls us servants. That's a really you know dramatic connection there. Beyond that, believers are called to submit to one another in the fellowship. Ephesians 5:21 is where. It says that spiritual gifts are at the heart of this. And so, again, we're just doing high-level view of these things, okay? We're not getting into the weeds. But as we think about service, it is a key element of the local church because we are called servants, and God has equipped us with spiritual gifts so that we would serve in the church in those ways that He has equipped us to serve in that gifting. Um, a really another like big picture view of this, a statement that you could memorize, is that we love and serve God by loving and serving others. Okay. 
We love and serve God by loving and serving others. So you want to be involved in serving God? Well, you serve God by serving others. That's what we're called to do. Selfless, sacrificial love is the service that God has for us. And there is a priority as we think about that. There's a priority to serve in the local church. And so you can jot this down. It's Galatians 6.10. I don't have it on your sheet. Galatians 6, verse 10. It says, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's do good to all people. Let's serve all people. But then Paul says, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there's a priority with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we should see from that. We have a priority in the local church to serve one another. Well, let's look at a couple of passages. Let's get a volunteer to read 1 Corinthians 12, 11 to 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 to 14. Melissa and Stan. Not Stan. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Do you want to do that one? Okay, 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. Who would read that for us? 1 Peter chapter 4, 10 to 11. Mandy, thank you. And so as we look at these passages, look at service here and how God has called us to serve, and you could say even equipped us to serve through spiritual gifting. We'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 to 14, Melissa. All right. So if we look back up at verse 11, Paul had just gotten done listing some spiritual gifts. And what he says in verse 11 is that you have the same Holy Spirit distributing a variety of spiritual gifts in the church just as he wills. The way that you are gifted to serve is based on the will of God the Spirit. And he goes on to show that we have diversity and unity together in the church based on these different ways that we serve. Okay? But the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has worked in your life in such a way, in your soul, in your heart, in such a way that you've been gifted to serve in the local church. Isn't that exciting for you? You have a responsibility then to nurture that gift to implement that gift, to grow in that gift, and to serve the local body. And we get some of the same thinking in 1 Peter chapter 4. So Mandy, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Would you read that for us? So if you look at verse 10, just hone in on verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 4. From that verse, how would you answer this question? What is the purpose of the diversity of gifts in the body? The local church. What are, what's the purpose of the diversity of gifts? Good. To serve one another. Isn't that pretty plain? As you've received a gift, use it to serve one another. And it's God's grace that you're stewarding. God's gracious activity in your soul. You get to steward that and be like conduit to where it's channeled out to others. You're serving Him by serving others. And he's working in other people's lives through you. How cool is that, that you get to be a part of that? What questions would come to your mind if you encountered a church that was full of consumers rather than servants? 
Okay, very good. Yeah, are there even gifts here? Uh, has the Holy Spirit saved them and gifted them? That would be a legitimate question. What else? Hmm. Because they'll probably have paid staff who are the servants because it's their livelihood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not good. What kind of things would you be thinking if you visited a church maybe for a month? Say you move to Texas and you find a church that seems like it'll work out and you visit for a month and you find that they're not very servant-minded. Yeah, depending on how much money they have, though, um, you can run into some churches that have a lot of money and they get a lot of show done on Sundays. But when you think about... Um, Caring for people between Sundays, not a lot of that gets done. Anything else come to mind with a church like that? Yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like if we were to kind of phrase that the inverse way, where God is, there will be servants. And so if you go to a place that calls itself a church and there is not an attitude of servanthood, people don't have servant hearts, and you start to wonder, is God even here? I mean, if, if he is, then the people are just really suppressing what he's doing, because what does he want? Service. Exactly right. And boy, it is sadly more common than we know. That's one of the benefits of being in Utah, I think, and being in such a great fellowship here in Utah, is uh, that we're kind of insulated from the rest of <laughs> the world. Um, you know, like I said, I was just in Greenville, South Carolina this past week, and I was staying with a, a couple, an older couple that lived about uh, 20, 25 minutes away from the campus. Driving to and from, you know, you see a dozen churches the whole way, and there can be some really, really good churches in places like that where that's densely populated with Christians, but you also get a lot of bad ones. You get way more bad ones than you do good ones. It's really sad. I'll talk, I was talking to some other pastors who live in that area or in other Bible Belt type places, and they would say things like, we have so many churches, there's so few good ones. I was talking to a guy in Colorado Springs. He says, we have so many churches, and it's scary what's out there. So I like that we're here, and we're just us, and here we are. <laughs> Joe. It's true. That's true. Just like a, uh, a fish doesn't know that it's wet, right? That's all you know. That's just like, well, I, got, I just started going here. Someone told me go here, and I went, and yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so the, really the goal should be for every Christian to be biblically literate. And the goal for every church's leadership should be help people become biblically literate. Because when we're all discerning, there can be true accountability. There can be true uh, wisdom. But yeah, if we just accept what other people say, we could end up in some really bad spots. Okay. One of the implications of this teaching, that service is central, is that every person has a ministry in the church. God has given gifts to his people for them to steward in the context of the local fellowship. Really, really important. 
Ministry is not something that's done by professionals. Ministry is not something that's done by people with official titles or anything like that. Ministry is something that every single Christian does. And it happens primarily in the local church. The local church is full of servants using their gifts to serve. These are the the terms that we get from Scripture. We are together in a church, a fellowship of believers. We are servants. We are servants who have been given gifts to use in serving one another. These are the themes that we get in the Bible when it comes to what we should be about in the local church. Okay. Well, the flip side of this, the flip side of the service coin, is the equipping aspect. Believers are able and called to use their particular gifts to equip other believers to serve in the same way, to varying degrees. Now, this is something that we often don't think about. When we consider gifts in the local church, we think, okay, God has gifted me um, with mercy, so I can go and show mercy to people in the church who need mercy. And that's 100% true, 1,000% true. But that's not the full answer. God has also given you the gift of mercy so you can help others understand how to be merciful. You ever thought of it that way? God's given you the gift of fill in the blank so you can teach others and demonstrate to others and and hold one another accountable in that particular area where you've been gifted. It's a very, very amazing part of local church relationships. Not only do we wash each other's feet, but we also train each other how to use those feet. And we have this in one primary passage in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And this is where we get our purpose statement as a church. Our purpose statement is that, oh, that's a bad one. I should use a different color anyway. Orchard Hills Bible Church exists to, next word is equip, and who are we equipping? Good, God's people. To serve, so equip, serve, and it goes on to say in the, and I'm going to use abbreviations now because I'm running out of room, in the church and in the community. Orchard Hills Bible Church exists to equip God's people to serve in the church and in the community. That's what we're all about. And we get that from this passage in Ephesians 4. Let's read it together, starting in verse 11. I'll read it for us. It says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom... The whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So if you go back to verse 12, there's our phrase. God has given these in the church 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. God gives His gifts not just for straight, one-way street service, but for the equipping of other people to use their gifts and to, um, to imitate to a degree the way that God has called you to serve. So you think about in this list in verse 11, you have apostles and prophets and you have pastors, but isn't it interesting that there are evangelists in there too? God has given evangelists in the church. So evangelists are not just to go out and reach people with the gospel, though that's a key element of what they're doing. They're also to train people in the church to evangelize. And aren't we thankful that there are people who are gifted in that way, who can help us in those ways? All right, so that's a, a really key part of why God gives us gifts. Um, yeah, we can do this. we got time. Summarize, in your own words, the purpose for our equipping one another. And so we've talked about the purpose of gifts is to serve and to equip one another. But the equipping of one another itself, how would you summarize that in your own words? Why would God call us to equip one another? Don't overthink it. Okay, goes on and on, right? Especially as we think about generationally, we should be equipping the next generation, right? We've got a lot of kids here. They're growing up in a very different world that many of you grew up in, right? Are they going to need to be equipped to handle that from Scripture? Yeah. Yep, you better believe it. What are some other thoughts you might have on that? Let's go super basic here. Is anybody perfect? So that means we all continually, each one of us, have a need to be equipped, don't we? Continually. Pick an area. There's like, pick any area of your life, okay? <laughs> any area. Do you have a need to be more equipped in that area? Yes, you do, okay? So, he gives these gifts to the body. He gives servants in the church that we would just continually help each other be holier, be uh, more discerning and wise, to be uh, more faithful, to be challenged, to be held accountable. I mean, all those things. Because we all need it in every area of our lives continually. So that's, that's really just as basic as it gets. In what ways does this play out in our church? How is this equipping stuff playing out at Orchard Hills Bible Church? Okay, so teaching and preaching is certainly a part of it. In fact, um, we call this Sunday school. You know, it's the the older term that a lot of churches want to get away from because it sounds not cool or something. I don't know. But there are some churches that call it the equipping hour. They'll call this the equipping hour. So, yeah, that's definitely part of it. What else? Elaborate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is what we call discipleship, or you could call it mentoring. Um, Getting together, and we should all be discipled one way or another. Now, there are some people that are going to find discipleship that meets their needs in the context of Sunday morning. Um, though there are a lot of people who think that, and that's not actually the case, who actually probably need more of a small group care or even one-on-one care. And there is so much that goes on in those relationships when it comes to equipping, where you're actually letting people into your kitchen, so to speak, let them know about your problems, let them know about your struggles. If you're not doing that, you're not going to get equipped. 
okay? And so that's a really, really key part of being equipped to serve. Um, if we think about evangelism in particular, how many of you have uh, helped serve at Onion Days or Orchard Days in San Quentin, anywhere we've done a booth or something like that? Um, wow, is it in this room just me and Melissa? Okay, so... <laughs> Woo! Uh, all right, so there's a problem. We need more people to volunteer for that stuff. Uh, Mandy, you've been there, haven't you? Okay, all right. Um, the first time you did it, Mandy, did we say, hey, sign up for a slot, and then you were there by yourself? No. What happened? Yeah. You weren't expected to teach someone else on your first day? <laughs> okay. But instead, there were people like, whether it was Tyler or me or Rex or whoever, people have been there before, who said, this is kind of how we do do it. This is our literature. This is how we go about doing it. You know, just sit back and watch for a while. That's equipping, isn't it? Very, very simple, straightforward. And, and evangelism is, a, is an easy one to see that because it's very task-oriented. And uh, it's like, okay, we're here for this time, for this period to kind of get the word out. And so this is what it looks like. But some of this other stuff, it really comes in the form of long-term relationships and ongoing conversations and accountability. And it's all equipping. All of that is equipping. What is the motivation for equipping one another? Well, the motivation must be that we see God's church strengthened. That's got to be the motivation. We should want a stronger church, a more loving church, a wiser church, a more faithful church. And that's only going to happen if we equip one another. The church exists for a purpose outside of itself. The church exists for God and his people. Therefore, there is no room for a spirit of competition in the local church. We make it our aim to build up and train one another with pure hearts and a spirit of love. That has to be our aim. No competition, no comparison. Um, how, you know, if you have a really competitive or prideful or judgmental mindset, how counterintuitive is equipping, right? You wouldn't want to teach someone else. You want to stand out. Well, when we recognize that the church is to build one another up in, the love, in love, well, we should want to equip one another so that we're built up more and more. We're strengthened more and more. There's no room for a spirit of competition, no room for pride when it comes to service and equipping. Final thoughts or questions on that, on equipping? Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, evangelism is so key in becoming equipped because I was in sales for a time and we have the phrase uh, marbles in the mouth where you get to a point in the conversation and you're like, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like you have marbles in your mouth. That can happen very easily in a spiritual conversation because we feel the, like the spiritual pressure in that moment. We feel the importance in that moment. We can be flush and we can, our heart, heart rate goes up and we start sweating. We feel that. But when you've been equipped in this way, evangelism, biblical evangelism, not just like what to say, like cue cards or memorizing lines, but to have some scripture in mind, to be trained on how to think about the other person, uh, how to just be real and open and honest and to leave it to God and pray for that person, all of that stuff. When you've been trained in those ways, it really helps. It really, really helps. It's okay. good. Other thoughts on equipping? All right, well, let's look at the final one, self-governance as the final mark of a true church. 
Another mark of the local church is the autonomous nature of its governance. Well, there's a fun sentence. There are leaders from within the body who direct it. You have some blanks there on your sheet there to fill out. Churches should be directed by leaders from within the body. They're at the bottom of page 50. From within the body. Next week, we will discuss what a church's governing body should look like. But this week, we're looking at why churches should have a government at all. Okay? So next week, uh, we're going to start a two-parter on what the Bible says about how church government should be structured. But for now, it's the big view of why self-governance should exist as a mark of the local church. So let's have someone grab, I'll get 1 Peter 5, but let's have someone get Acts 14, 21 to 23, and then someone get Titus 1, 5. Diane, you'll get Acts 14, 21 to 23, thank you. And then Titus 1, 5, who can get that for us? Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Riley, thanks. So in Acts chapter 14, you have the Apostle Paul, after planting churches in Galatia, he is coming back through these cities that he had already planted churches in, and let's read what he does next. So Acts 14, 21 to 23. Iconium. Very good. So again, you see prayer and fasting come up in verse 23, prayer being a key part of what the church is up to. But notice the priority that Paul had. They preached the gospel, disciples were being made, they were encouraging the disciples, and then look at his next move. Not only is it prayer, but it's appointing elders in every church. Now this is important that you notice it says elders, plural, in every church, each church, singular. So each individual church had a plurality of elders within it, and those elders were from within those churches. So you go to Iconium, you see the disciples there, you appoint some men to lead the church in Iconium. Lystra, same thing. Derby, same thing. He would go around to these cities and do that. All right, so appointing elders from within the church was a priority for Paul. And we see that too whenever he would write to Timothy and Titus, because Timothy and Titus were men who were qualified to serve in the local church, but they had been given a specific mission to go and appoint elders in these churches where they were serving, that they wouldn't just be the only ones in leadership, but that they would appoint others for leadership. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5, let's hear what Paul said to Titus. Go ahead, Riley. Okay, again, notice it's elders, plural, in every city. Okay, each individual, each individual or singular city got a plurality of elders. And of course, at that time, there was one church per city. It wasn't first, second, third Baptist Crete, you know. Uh, they didn't have that going on. It was very early on. But Paul says it was for this purpose that you were left there, that you would establish elders or overseers in those local churches. Let's see. Here's a good question that makes you think a little bit. What challenges did the early church face when it came to appointing leaders? So as we think of Paul in Galatia in Acts 14, or as we think of Titus in Crete in Titus 1.5, what challenges did that early church face when it came to appointing leaders? What do you think? Right. Extremely outnumbered. Uh, you know, Paul writes to Titus and says, it's true what they say, all Cretans are liars. But for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would appoint elders. 
it's like, oh, okay. Uh, that's really encouraging, right? So out of these pagan places, or some cases very heavily Jewish places, out of the believers you got, look for those with leadership potential. That was the commission. Very, very difficult. What other challenges can you think of? One that comes to my mind is just how new everything was. I mean, Jesus had just died, risen, and ascended a couple decades before this, and it's all so new. Trying to figure out how the law works with this grace now that's been given to the church, how Jews and Gentiles can get along. I mean, that's still a struggle. I mean, there's so many things we struggle with today. And to try to put myself in the shoes of these guys 2,000 years ago when it was all so fresh, it's really, really difficult. They needed special wisdom, didn't they? They needed, needed really uh, spirit-led decision-making. Well, what challenges does the do? Melissa, should that say do or does? It should say does? Okay. Sweet. What challenges does the church face? That sounds so wrong. Does the church face today when it comes to appointing leaders? So, same question, but just modern day. What are some of our, one of, what are some of our struggles today? Yeah, boy, you're telling me. Because it takes time to lead, doesn't it? To have meetings, to counsel, all that stuff, to prepare to teach and then to teach. Very big issue. What else? Okay, so in what way, in what way is responsibility a challenge? Okay, yeah, so especially, just again to tie it to today, we have a low commitment culture that we live in. People don't like to commit to things. And saying, hey, would you commit to taking the responsibility of shepherding the souls of God's people for an indefinite period of time? <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty tough one. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way to like lessen that. that. That is what it is. It's, yeah, it's a big responsibility. Finding qualified people has always been a challenge um, as... You know, the passage Stan read for us a little bit earlier in Titus 1, where it walked through some of these qualifications. It's difficult finding men who are willing to commit to those characteristics of what it takes to be a leader. Um, that's tough. It requires to have a life that's set apart even a little bit extra. Yeah. April. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to defend the truth against so many attacks today, and it's really not even just religion, like secular philosophies. There are a bunch of those out there. I was just talking about aliens. You know, the guy with the, the most famous podcast in the world, he has millions of listeners, literally. He's advocating alien theory. To be ready to answer the question as a pastor in the church, could aliens exist? Have to be ready to answer that, yeah. Okay, a lot of challenges, lots and lots of challenges. Um, Let me finish by reading 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Again, on the topic of self-governance, it says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. 
not nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, so there's a question you can ponder describing the calling that's been given to pastors. But to sum this up, if a church does not have leadership in place, plurality is what is preferable, that's the pattern in Scripture, it makes itself susceptible to many undesirable effects. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say, By God's design, churches depend on faithful leadership in order to be strong, healthy, productive, and fruitful. Scripture teaches that God has given elders to each local congregation in order to oversee and lead His people. As those tasked with feeding and protecting the flock, elders will one day give an account before the Lord for the souls under their spiritual care. What a great recruiting line for more elders in the church. Hey, you want to be responsible and give an account before the Lord for the souls under your care? Woo! All right. Uh, without local church leadership, church discipline becomes almost impossible. Uh, consider the steps of church discipline that Jesus gives in Matthew 18. How on earth would those play out without local church leadership? Well, God has designed the local church to have local shepherds, and next week we'll get into that about how all that should be structured and play out, okay? I'm past my time. We did make it to the end of page 50, and uh, next week we will start at the top of 51. I'll pray again, and then we'll move on to the next thing. God, again, we thank you so much for who you are and for what you've done. Please help us today to worship you rightly and to honor you from the heart. In Jesus' name, amen.